Today on Stronger Than Reason, we'll talk about taking that crazy, dangerous step from just listening to music to creating your own. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So you might notice that this is the 40th episode, and as such, I'm going to celebrate by doing something a little different. Instead of talking about some famous band, I'm going to tell a story about a band that isn't famous, but nevertheless had an enormous impact on my life. Now, I did warn you all about this at the end of the last episode, so don't look so surprised and disappointed. And a quick note for those listening to this as a podcast, there is a visual element to today's episode, modest as it may be, so you might want to check it out later on YouTube. A bit of a slideshow, as it were. So, you probably gathered from the previous 39 episodes that I'm a fan of music. I've been listening to music as long as I can remember, even back in the 70s when I'd listened to my parents' records and eight tracks. They had some great seven inches. We had Hot Stuff by Donna Summer, Call Me by Blondie, and most importantly, King Tut by Steve Martin. And I started my own music collection when I was a young teenager, and I got kind of funny about it. I kept all of my tapes and CDs in a certain order. They had to be alphabetic by band or the artist's last name. And within each band, they had to be chronological by release date. That order was, you know, very important. And my original collection was all on cassette. Many of them copied from friends. But I eventually jumped aboard the whole CD thing, as I said in the past. And that was due to a few factors. For one... The sound quality was clearly better than cassettes, and for another, they were smaller than vinyl, and at least at the time promised a longer shelf life. So even in the digital age, I kept buying physical copies of music. I like to own music. Streaming isn't really my thing. Like a lot of folks, especially the vinyl enthusiasts, I like to have a physical connection to the music. I like to have something to look at, liner notes to read, pictures of the band, some artwork, and that stuff. So if you're familiar with the Big Bang Theory, the theory that is, not the TV show. So the Big Bang itself was followed by a period of cosmic inflation where the universe grew much larger in a very short period of time. And that was basically what happened to my music collection in college. I had access to some really legendary music stores and my tastes were very wide-ranging. Today, I probably still own about 60% of the music that I bought during those years. I sold a bunch of it in the late 90s for cash when stores like Disco Round and CD Warehouse were all over. You know, they would buy CDs for three bucks and resell them for seven bucks. And it's funny, but I do find myself repurchasing some of the records that I had sold now. Uh, I'll go look for something on my shelf And I'm surprised it's not there. Uh, It's also weird to sometimes have a song pop up in my mind only to realize that I only own it on cassette. I never did get the CD or a digital copy. Maybe it's something I haven't actually listened to in 25 years, but I used to listen to it all the time. So those songs and albums end up being these amazing time capsules. I'll just bring them up on YouTube for a listen or I'll go and repurchase it. And it immediately takes me back to 1998 or whatever it was. And that happened recently with bands like Ned's Atomic Dustbin and Widespread Panic. Those records were 
a part of my young adulthood just as much as New Order or KMFDM. But somehow they just didn't make that transition into my digital collection. They're like these animals that once existed, but that they left no fossil record. Uh, But I still have a lot of memories and emotions tied up in them. It's weird. Anyway, music was and is a huge part of my life. Uh, The 80s and 90s were a little different than now in the sense that music that you bought helped to define your identity. So your friends knew what you were listening to and you knew what they were listening to. Every time you got in a car, the driver got to pick the tunes. That's just the rule. And that was an important mechanism for sharing music back then. I mean, uh, we had other things. We had like the radio, but once we hit 16 or so, my friends and I pretty much stopped paying attention to the radio. We were mostly into alternative music and the radio didn't play that. Uh, We had to find out about it from each other. A friend of a friend of a friend, you know, that kind of thing. The six degrees of separation thing. Uh, It's kind of like social media, but the medium was in our brains. It wasn't on the internet. So the real mechanism for sharing and learning about new music was the fact that no two people had interests that completely overlapped. So there was always a bit that one person was into that the other person just didn't know about. Uh, So when two people got together, there was always an opportunity to share interests here in the middle, but also to learn something new. Now, I'm going to mention a lot of my friends in this episode, but I will say right now that I'm not using real names. I need to protect the innocent and the not so innocent. Some of them do listen to this podcast and I don't want any libel suits. So in the band that we had at the time, we used clever pseudonyms and that's what I'll use here. So anyway, as an example of how we shared music, I would go over to my friend Eric 6655321's house and bum around his room. I'd play his Game Boy. He'd put on some Front 242. Now, maybe I'd never heard Front 242, so he would turn me on to it. And other times, I'd get into my friend Robbie's car, and he'd plug in a Dead Kennedys tape. I didn't have any Dead Kennedys in my collection, but that's how I got into them. And to this day, listening to Jello Biafra takes me back to driving all around the state with Robbie. You know, another friend of ours was really into just straight up rock and roll. So driving with him would always involve Van Halen or Aerosmith. It was just a completely different vibe. And my friend Alutaps was heavily into the Talking Heads, REM, Bluegrass. Uh, My friend Neb was into Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and the Grateful Dead. But like every one of these folks loved the Thrill Kill Cult as much as I did. And I may have mentioned that way back in the TKK episode. So the point was there was always some overlap, but we also had some differences and we all kind of learned from each other. Of course, we would all advertise the bands that we liked. So logos and band names written on notebooks. We wore t-shirts. We had patches. You know, there was the ever popular denim jacket with the band patch on the back. All kinds of ways that we communicated these things. And the bands that you listened to would say something about you. It would help people to get a handle on who you were, what you identified with, kind of a shorthand. I'm sure that still happens today. I don't know, but it was really, really obvious when I was a kid. Then we'd physically share music, mostly by copying cassettes. So everyone had a modular stereo system of some kind. Some really fancy and expensive, and some were cheap. I had a cheap one. 
Uh, they would generally have like a turntable, CD player, dual cassette deck, uh, AM, FM receiver, that kind of thing. So whatever you happen to go buy, like an LP, CD, or cassette, you could always copy it to a cassette using your dual cassette decks, and you could share it with your friend. So we would copy entire albums, of course, but we would also make mixtapes. Uh, I don't know that such a thing really exists anymore, at least in the personal sense, where you create a, pay- a playlist just for a specific individual. I know that there are playlists on Spotify and all that, but I'm not quite sure that those work the same way. I have a feeling that mixtapes are probably a lost art, and I know a lot has been said about them over the years. Books have been written, movies have been made. Go read or watch Nick Hornby's High Fidelity, for example. Uh, I know Ad Rock has a whole chapter about mixtapes in the Beastie Boys book. There was an art to it, so you would use the songs on a mixtape to convey a specific message. You know, band selection mattered, the song selection mattered, the sequencing mattered. Sometimes you'd plug in a mic and do some voiceover in between songs. But the songs were just part of it because you also had the packaging. So blank cassettes would always come with a J card of some kind. And it would have lines on it so you could list out your songs. But how you filled it in mattered. The lettering, the colors, the design. You'd color it all in somehow. And, you know, there was a DIY aspect to the mixtapes. Sometimes we'd cut out words or pictures from magazines. We'd paste up a collage. I got one mixtape from a friend where the cover was literally a label from a can of black beans, which was just brilliant because... In my tape collection, it was immediately recognizable. So clearly, my friends and I were heavily into music, yet few of us played music. So one day, my friend Double Six bought a bass guitar. And that really blew me away because I had never actually seen a bass before. I didn't really even know what a bass guitar was until one day in middle school when I suddenly wondered out loud what Paul McCartney played in The Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) And another friend looked at me like I had three heads and he's like, bass, duh. And I was like, what's a bass? And I never really saw one or thought about it until I saw double sixes. And it was cool. Uh, It was like an electric guitar, but bigger. And it had only uh, four strings, but the strings were really thick and it sounded awesome. And I had to wonder what prompted him to even buy this? Because it was a thought that had never even crossed my mind. I mean, Double Six was one of those guys who was always thinking a few steps ahead. I think that's still true. But the fact that he had a bass will figure into this story a little later. And I had another friend, Jimmy, who had an electric guitar. But I don't think he had any idea how to play it. And how do I know this? Well, for one thing, he tuned it so that every string played the same note. Now, I didn't know anything about guitars at the time, but... That seemed kind of fishy to me. I was pretty sure guitars weren't normally tuned that way. But I will say that it made it easy to play Stigmata. Uh, He had one of those little Gorilla amps that had the onboard distortion. So that was my first real experience playing an electric guitar. And it was a lot of fun. It was just fun to make that much noise. Um, I had a few other friends that had some kind of consumer electronics type instruments So Shelly had an old Yamaha PSR-16. You know, it was one of those big old keyboards from the 80s that had the tinny little drum machine and a bunch of pre-programmed rhythms and a bunch of sounds that all kind of sounded like buzzing 
even if it was called flute or, you know, piano or whatever. And they were all, they all pretty much sounded like crap. This thing had no MIDI or anything like that. Uh, this one was somewhat cooler though, since it had this digital synthesizer section over here. It was just a few sliders that you could move around to kind of affect the sound and trip it out. I think it also had a sustain button for some very simple, you know, reverb kind of effect. It was pretty much crap. <laughs> but then my friend Matt had a cool Yamaha DD5. Okay, so this was something that actually his little sister owned, but we played with it anyway. She was kind enough to let us mess with it. And this was as if they took the crappy drum machine out of the keyboard and put it in its own unit. In fact, that's probably exactly what it was. And then they added these rubber, rubber drum pads so you could play along. And it all sounded terrible, of course. It was like 8-bit sound or something. It was just horrible. Finally, my friend Robbie had an acoustic guitar, of course. And I think it was a Yamaha. And I mentioned it before because he's left-handed. So he would teach me chords and things. And I'd have to kind of relearn them upside down on a regular guitar strung for a right-hander. So it was a little confusing, but in fact, Robbie was my first guitar teacher, if I really think about it. He taught me the basic open chords and let me play his guitar. So I was very grateful that he taught me what he did. So we did have some instruments floating around, but no one really got it together to have a band or anything. Personally, I didn't own any instruments at all. And my experience with playing music was being in the middle school band. Uh, I played percussion, which pretty much meant I was useless. Uh, more often than not, I'd play the big bass drum or the triangle or the cymbals. It was more or less an excuse to screw around for a period. And I don't recall taking drum lessons or anything like that. Now, way back in the past, when I was much younger, my mom got my sister and I to take piano lessons. I was probably 10 or so at the time. But strangely enough, that didn't work out. Maybe because... Oh, let me think about it. We didn't own a piano, so I could never practice. Now, my grandmother did have a piano, and she lived right across the street from my piano teacher, but the only person allowed to play that piano was my uncle. If my sister or I sat down to play it, my grandparents would yell, Who's making all that noise? Who's banging on that piano? So yeah, not super encouraging. And needless to say, we learned very little. Mostly I remember those lessons because my teacher had two cats, and they would occasionally run across the keyboard. Uh, I don't really even know, I didn't know anybody at the time who played in a band, not even like a teenage garage band or anything like that, no cover bands. So it's pretty strange that for being such rabid fans of music, none of us had any ambition to really play it ourselves. Uh, we looked up to musicians, but it never occurred to us to become musicians or even to play music with others for fun. But one day, all of that changed. And now I'm going to tell that story. First of all, because I think it's a little bit funny. And second, because it was a big step to take, crossing that line between consuming music and making it. It may have seemed like a little step at the time, but it's something that really changed my life. Making music, for me, is still a hobby. It's not a profession, but I've taken it pretty far as a hobby. And it's a big part of my life these days. I get a lot of pleasure and fulfillment from it. And it's one of those things where you could go as deep as you want. You could spend your whole life learning more and more and more and never learn at all. So it's really exciting in that way. Today, I really want to focus on that particular day 
and what happened next. Uh, I didn't do it alone. I did it with my friend Robbie because let's face it, it took guts. It took guts to sit down and say, you know what? Let's make our own music. As soon as you say that, you're taking a risk. Maybe no one will like it. Maybe it'll be crap. Maybe we'll fail. After all, I'm not a musician. I have no training, no skills. There was nothing in my life to really suggest I could make my own music. I didn't even own any instruments. So I'm not sure I would have had the guts to take that step without someone else. So I do owe it to Robbie for being there and taking that jump with me. But let's zoom in on that day, or actually that night. I recall that it was late on a Saturday night. I was at Robbie's. We were watching 120 Minutes on MTV as we did. Now, for those who don't know, 120 Minutes was MTV's alternative show where they agreed to play the niche stuff in the middle of the night. So it was probably 1 a.m. or whatever. You have to imagine us sitting there waiting for something kick-ass like Ministry or Skinny Puppy or Nine Inch Nails to come on. And instead, Dave Kendall plays a song by a band we never heard of before. It was The Specials. Now, for those who aren't familiar, The Specials are a seminal ska band. They coined the term two-tone and pretty much define the style. And the song we saw that night was A Message to You, Rudy, which is, of course, a classic. I know that now. And I just rewatched that video again for this episode as research. And I have to say that I, I get it now. I know more about the specials and the whole two-tone movement. I have context. I can dig that song and the video for what they are. And I admit, they're very cool in their own way. I mean, ska in general is not my bag, but I can understand it. And I give them props. But 18-year-old me back in 1991, I did not get it at all. So Robbie and I were sitting there, staying up all night, waiting for some hard-hitting industrial or punk or goth or whatever. And we thought, what is this reggae crap? We were outraged. So maybe brashly, we declared right there that we could make better music than that. And, you know, as soon as you you do that... (laughs) You know, as you do when you're a kid, it's all bluster, and we thought it was hilarious, it was a joke, it was our way of putting one over on the specials. We figured any music that we would create would surely suck, but if it were better than the specials, then the specials would really suck. I mean, that was, that was our idiot 18-year-old headspace, folks. It doesn't have to make sense now. It was really just a bit of self-deprecating humor. It was really nothing personal against the specials, but... I don't remember which of us actually stated that idea first. It was either Robbie or me, but it didn't matter. Whoever said it, said it. The other one busted out laughing, and then we both started laughing, realizing how absurd it would be. So maybe Robbie can correct me, but my memory of the next day or so was this. I went home that night. I came back to his house the next day. We went into his basement, and we got to work. The first step was picking a band name. We brainstorm for a while because a band name, it has to convey something about your band. And again, our attitude was that we were going to be the worst band ever. So bad that it would only be a band in the loosest sense of the word. We had to have terrible lyrics, terrible songs. And so we had to give ourselves a terrible name. One that would make it very clear to any potential listeners that they had to set their expectations very, very low. So the ironic thing is that we were so serious about being not serious about it. After all, 
We were going about this very methodically with notebooks and pencils. It was like a real project, but it had to be stupid and fun and completely disposable. So after about five minutes of consideration, we settled on a band name, and it was this, The Spoonheads. That was maybe the dumbest name we could think of short of maybe The Forkheads. Of course, nowadays, there are plenty of bands out there called The Spoonheads, but let me assure you that my band, The Spoonheads, is nowhere on the internet. And I know because I search for that stuff in case one one of my friends or someone happened to post anything but I came up completely empty, zero hits. So if you're seeing Spoonhead's bands, they're not mine. I guarantee that all those bands are newer, merely riding on our coattails because we founded the original Spoonhead's back in January of 1991. So by the time our band had run its course, a few people had heard about it, but only a fraction of those folks had ever really heard us. I don't think many people ended up with our recordings Definitely not enough to put them online or do anything with them. To that point, I'm going to change all that. In this episode, I'll share for the first time on the interwebs an original Spoonheads recording. And I think I have to do that if only to give you the full flavor of what happened at that time in our lives. And maybe to prove that it wasn't just a story I'm making up. And also to put you, the listener, in the room, so to speak. Maybe to communicate something of what it was like for a bunch of novice musicians to write, perform, and record an original song in one take. Because whatever else this project was, I can tell you that the moments of actually playing the songs were really magical. Anytime a group performs a song live, it's magical. Those are moments that could never really happen again in quite the same way. They're special. And to hear a song performed live for the first time, it's more so. It's like, a, it's like a birth in some ways. And it still stuns me somewhat that I was able to be a part of that, that I contributed to that magic just by deciding that I wanted to do it. That's all it took. Uh, we didn't have to take lessons. We didn't have to get signed or anything like that. We just did it. And that speaks to the DIY aspect of what we were doing. Remember, a lot of the DIY attitude came from punk. And the idea was, you want to be a musician? Great. Just do it. Whether you're good or not is meaningless. Art is art. As Frank Zappa said, anyone can be a composer. All you have to do is declare a beginning and an end to your performance. And the stuff in between, that's for you to decorate You have to decorate moments of time. That's it. That's what a composer does. And whether it's good or not is for other people to decide. And everyone gets to decide for themselves. It's a subjective thing. It's not an objective thing. The role of the artist is just to create art or at least point it out. And here I'm thinking of the ready-made art of Marcel Duchamp. You can also just declare that something is art. The bar for art is very low. So... Whatever else it did, punk encouraged everyone to become an artist. So in its most basic form, punk says not to worry about the judgment part. Just make art. Make it joyously and loudly, any way you want to, free from anyone else's expectations. Of course, punk evolved from that early ethos, and today is kind of a shorthand for people behaving in a very narrow and specific way. Namely, mohawks, safety pins, torn clothes, and two-minute songs. And God forbid if you deviate from that formula, because you ain't punk. Uh, But true punks know 
It's not about that formula. It's really giving yourself permission to express yourself as you see fit. And this fits into the idea of praxis, not the fusion band, but the philosophy. Praxis is the act of practicing and learning by doing. In other words, instead of studying something endlessly, just do it. Try it. And as Tony Wilson used to say, praxis makes perfect. But in his case, it led him to spending all of New Order's fortune and driving factory records into the ground. But another thing comes to mind here, and it's something called NaNoWriMo. Maybe you're familiar with it. NaNoWriMo. It's short for National Novel Writing Month. And if you aren't aware, every November is a National Novel Writing Month. You can learn more about it at NaNoWriMo.org. I'll put some links in the description. Now, they have adapted the punk ethos to say that anyone can write a novel. It really comes down to math. That's right. It comes down to math. So suppose on each of the 30 days in November, you sit down and write 2,000 words of something, some story. The story itself hardly matters. It can be absolutely anything. But if you sit down and mechanically produce 2,000 words a day for 30 days, then the good people at NASA assure us that you'll have written 60,000 words, which is, not coincidentally, the length of a shortish novel. So how long does it take to write 2,000 words? Well, that depends on how fast you can type or write by hand, maybe an hour or two. But the point is that it's only a matter of committing to putting in that work. The math doesn't lie. Okay, the result is assured. If you write long enough, you'll eventually write a novel. Now, NaNoWriMo makes it very, very clear your novel might not be great. It might not even be good. But what is great or good? They're just subjective things. They're judgments made by each person who would read your novel. And what do you care what they think? Uh, The point of NaNoWriMo is to set up a community of novelists and novelists-to-be to encourage each other, to commiserate with each other, just to help each other finish the race to help as many people as possible reach that finish line on November 30th. So it's like running a 10K or a marathon. You do it just to say you did it. There's really no health reason to do it. In fact, sometimes running a long road race can be anything but healthy. You do it to say you did it. And this is a good time to mention this because November 1st is about a month away as I speak. And maybe this will encourage some listeners to try to write that novel they've always kind of thought about. Now, you might ask, did I do this? Did I write a novel just to do it? Of course I did. Yes, I'm a novelist. I admit it. You can be too. Now, I didn't strictly follow NaNoWriMo, but I was encouraged by them to write a novel a few years ago. And it sat on a shelf for many years, but lately I've been thinking, uh, yeah, I should self-publish that. Uh, So I'm working on that. Personally, I like my novel. I don't think it's terrible. I think it came out pretty well. You know, but that's just like my opinion, man. You might think it sucks. Maybe I'll drop a link to it here someday in this show. I don't know. Once I get it out there, we'll see. But to tie it back to this story, NaNoWriMo is doing for writers what we were doing in 1991, just giving permission. In our case, we were just giving ourselves permission to do this thing, to write and record music, regardless of the outcome. It might suck. It would probably suck, but damn it. We just wanted to cross that finish line. For us, it was about finishing the race. It wasn't about how fast we ran it or what place we came in. 
Now, it's also worth pointing out that we decided to write and record original music, not play covers. I mean, we were in this whole hog. The mission was to write and record new music, not to play somebody else's. And there is nothing wrong with playing other people's music. It's what most musicians do. Think of any concert band or orchestra, for instance, not to mention every bar band you've ever heard. So there's nothing wrong with any of that. Playing music of any kind is great, and I highly recommend it. I'm not here to say that what we as knucklehead teenagers were doing was any more noble or whatever than the lady who plays first violin in the symphony. I just want to point out that there's a difference between composing your own music and playing music someone else wrote. They're two completely different things. For sure, some of the world's most accomplished musicians have never played anything they've written themselves, and that's fine. Uh, Personally, I've tried both. A lot of people have. That's nothing special. I can say for me that there's an extra satisfaction in doing it all myself, writing, performing, recording, to myself bring a new song into the world, one that didn't exist before. It's a satisfaction I've never felt by playing covers. So getting back to the story, we now had a band name and we needed some songs. Now, remember, we didn't have any instruments other than Robbie's guitar, so we figured we'd write some lyrics. So we opened our notebooks and sharpened our pencils, and we spent that afternoon writing the dumbest song lyrics we could think of. And we came up with ideas for about a half a dozen songs. I can tell you, we were absolutely pleased with ourselves. We were grinning ear to ear. We thought we were the funniest, (laughs) most clever people ever. I came up with what I thought was a hilarious song title, Instant Arsenic Death. I used to write gross things on my video cassettes at home, the tapes I used to record like 120 minutes in The Simpsons, you know, just to like scare my family away from them. So I had some of these tapes like, here's violent bloody gore, and here is bloody lumpy innards, and here is buckets o' entrails. Yeah. You know, go back and listen to the TKK episode for detail on why I thought that was hilarious. I'm really not going to explain that again. Uh, But anyway, instant arsenic death was a phrase that was kicking around in my head. And we laughed for ages about what a song called instant arsenic death might sound like. I think I also wrote a song, some lyrics about a truck stop that afternoon. (laughs) So Robbie wrote some songs too. I don't recall which ones, but... There we were, we had a band name and we had some lyrics, and now we needed some music. This was a sticking point, since we only had a guitar. Robbie at least knew how to play a half dozen open chords, but what was I going to play? Coincidentally, around this time, our friend Double Six was going on vacation for the week, and he asked me to house-sit for him. That involved feeding his dog, watering the plants, and just keeping an eye on the place. So uh, we would go... I'd go over there once a day or so and play with the dog, you know. Um, And if you recall, I said earlier that Double Six had a bass guitar and an amp. Well, he also had a pretty cool synthesizer, a real synthesizer. In fact, it was a Yamaha DX100. And somehow my young adult brain put all this together, put it into a plan that my current adult brain is a little shocked by. I would never, ever have done this if I were even a little bit older and more responsible. But to me, at 18, it just made sense. There was no harm in it. This was just a simple matter of problem solving. And I'm sure you can see it coming a mile away. And even now you're saying, oh no, but oh yes, 
I invited Robbie to help me with my house sitting. And we went over there and borrowed Double Six's gear to do a little recording. So the way it worked was like this. Uh, we had borrowed Matt's little sister's drum machine. So we put it on, in the room along with my trusty Toshiba boombox. I plugged in two little dictaphone mics so we could record in stereo. We also found Double Six's bass and synth and had those on standby ready to go. And we just went for it. And after two days or so of this, we'd recorded not only six versions of what became Instant Arsenic Death, which I'll admit is something of a novelty tune, but we also recorded a handful of other things that sounded more and more like actual songs. Uh, some even had verses and choruses. And we were very, very pleased with ourselves. The music was just as bad and silly and hilarious as we imagined it would be much to the chagrin of the specials, I'm sure. And we really put them in their place. But a funny thing happened. We ended up recording the last song twice because we didn't think the first take was good enough. So already some sense of craft and maybe pride was sneaking into things. We were trying to do a good job. We were starting to have standards as low as they may have been, but they were there. They were creeping in. Uh, but to be sure, these were very primitive recordings. In the middle of one song, you can actually hear Robbie's wristwatch alarm go off, and he curses and shuts it off. It's pretty funny. Uh, and I'm pretty sure our friend Neb was present for the first session to give credit or blame where it's due. The strange thing is, I don't think we even told him we'd be over at double sixes. I think his fun radar just was pinging, and he followed it there, kind of like a homing pigeon. So cut to about a week or so later, Double Six and his parents come home, and they were pleased the house hadn't burned down. They were pleased the dog seemed happy. So at a discreet moment, I pulled Double Six aside, and I told him what we had done. He was bemused, and he listened to our tape with some surprise, like, you guys did all this in my room? <laughs> but fortunately for us, he was into punk himself. He got it. So he didn't disown us as friends or just call the cops. Instead, he saw the funny side and even offered to contribute in the future. And you'll hear his contribution shortly. Meanwhile, Robbie and I were on a roll. We continued to write and record. We made the next few songs at his house on the assumption that Double Six's parents wouldn't be too keen. We considered this next batch of songs to be our next album, maybe our first proper album, considering that the first one was kind of an EP with all those versions of Instant Arsenic Death. But once again, we needed a name for the album. So I remember we wrote a bunch of ideas on a piece of paper and literally stuck it to his dartboard. And one dart throw later, we had our song title. And it was this, Grandma Ethel's Old Fashioned Recipes for Noise. Again, the idea was to communicate stupidity through the title, which I think we achieved. <laughs> so these days, I like to think that really what we were doing here was blazing a trail that Tenacious D would someday walk, making absurd, funny, mostly acoustic songs. Of course, we preceded the D by three years, I'm just saying. But I could see Tenacious D covering the Spoonheads and having it go pretty well because it was the same kind of humor. So Jack and Kyle, if you're watching this, please take note. Another funny thing happened around this time. Word started getting around. Hey, these guys had the nerve to start an actual band. So more and more of our friends wanted in on this silly fun. Uh, Shelly let us borrow her keyboard, 
and she played on a track. Another guy named Cliff came into the picture and he played guitar. Uh, the key event was our friend Allotaps getting involved. And you might remember him as the U2 fan. I talked about him in a couple previous episodes. He was our age, but somehow seemed a bit older. Like he was more mature. I think he just had his act together more as a high school senior heading into college. But for sure, he was an actual musician, unlike the rest of us. He played tuba in the school band, but he was really one of those people who could play any instrument well. So his older brother happened to have a beautiful Rickenbacker bass in the attic, and soon enough, his attic would become our base of operations, with Alitap supplying some really cool bass and some overall musical direction. Now, around this time, I remember him playing a 12-bar blues jam, and I was just astounded. I had no idea what 12-bar blues even was or what that term was, though I had heard that pattern in music a million times. And whatever he, whatever it was he was doing, to me, sounded like a real song. And that was my first inkling that most pop music followed just a handful of patterns, and you didn't have to know many of them to be able to play most anything. So we were really impressed by that, and we figured clearly this was the guy who was going to take us to the next level. So around this time, late March 91, Alitap's parents went out of town, and like proper nerds, instead of having a big kegger, we decided to have a big jam session. So we set up all this stuff in his living room, and we recorded a new song. So the lineup that day was Robbie on vocals, Alitap's on bass, Double Six on his synth, and me on the stupid Yamaha drum machine banging away. This is the song I'm going to play for you now. It's internet debut. Now, a couple funny things about this recording. For one, the drums sound absolutely terrible, completely artificial, and I practically ruined the whole song when the drum machine is too slow in the beginning. For another, it strikes me that it is an actual song. There are verses, choruses, and a cool lead in the middle. And if you listen really closely during the lead, you can even hear the phone ring in the other room. Uh, Finally, I just want to give props to Robbie, who I got to say really could sing very well. He was in our high school musicals after all, but the guy has real talent. And Double Six played a pretty cool keyboard solo for a guy who I don't think ever played keyboard before for reals. So props to those guys for bringing it in. Uh, I'm actually really proud of this song. Again, it's in the spirit of a band like Tenacious D. The lyrics are really silly, and I admit I wrote them one night at the kitchen table while I should have been doing my calc homework, and I refused to tell my mom why I was laughing so hard. Well, here you go, mom. Listen away. This song is called Granite Pants, and I think the words speak for themselves. So without further ado, here's Granite Pants. Thank you. 
was granite pants by the Spoonheads. Notice how we stuck the ending. It was actually pretty badass, like we knew what we were doing. Now, we might have spent 10 minutes coming up with the music and arrangement before recording that. Again, that's the nature of live performance. Uh, just capturing lightning in the bottle, you know. And I got to say that it was a tough call to play that song or our other signature tune, which was called Lick the Bug Zapper. Great song, but I'll have to save that one for now. And, you know, so what, right? I'm not telling you this because I think my high school band was great or even good or because I want to promote these 30-year-old songs. I'm interested in what drove us to create music of our own, that creative spark, hoping maybe it'll inspire someone else to be creative too. But you might ask, why did we need to record any of this? Wouldn't it have been just as satisfying to do it in the moment, just to have the memory? Well, I would argue that all three ingredients were the magic sauce here. We had to write the music. We made it entirely on our own. The idea of the song didn't exist. And then it did because of decisions we made. And then we performed it. We brought the song to life. The four of us played our parts. We expressed ourselves in the moment. We listened to each other and responded. And I'd argue that the sum was greater than any of the parts. It was a real communal moment of creation. And that was true not just for this song that I just played, but for all the songs we made together. And finally, we had the foresight to record it. Because that song now exists not as a memory, but as a thing in this world. And now that I put it on the internet, it will continue to exist, probably until the heat death of the universe. You know, in theory, someone 50 years from now might stumble across it, get a laugh, and decide to record a new version. And so it goes. Or maybe Jack Block will hear it and decide to record it as a Tenacious D B-side. That would be pretty rad. But those three steps, writing, playing, and recording, to me, those were the things that made it feel like a real accomplishment to me. Now you might ask, what good did it do for me? What did I do for any of this? Did I parlay it into a rewarding career as a popular musician? Obviously not. Just like in a Brian Adams song, we all went to college, the band eventually broke up, and we all went our separate ways. Now it's funny just to think about this, you know, in hindsight and talk about it in email or whatever. It's just a good memory from our high school days. Did I continue writing original music? Not at first. Uh, The next 15 years or so were rough music-wise. I had a lot of other things going on in my life. And also beyond a boombox, I didn't really know how to record. I did eventually get a four-track recorder, but it wasn't very inspiring. It was actually pretty complicated and primitive. And, you know, truth be told, the sound quality was crap. Besides, with like changing jobs and moving constantly, I had little time for serious music projects. However, at one point I did buy a drum set and I learned to play drums and I bought, you know, guitars as you do. And strangely enough, my dad uh, got into music as well. What happened was I bought a bass from this guy in my hometown. He was a former pro musician who was kind of a Johnny Appleseed of rock music. And God bless those guys. They're all over the place. But he would invite people to his place to learn guitar and kind of jam out and uh, get comfortable with the instrument. And I used to play bass with him and a few other guys. But then I got a job out of town and had to move away. And my dad knew this guy through a mutual friend and somehow got recruited to take my place. My dad had never held a guitar before in his life. And he's probably, uh, at that point, about as old as I am now. But because of that, nearly 30 years later... My dad is now an accomplished rock bassist. 
and it's not something either of us expected, but it's something we were able to share over the years. And my dad and I actually played in a cover band together in 97 and 98. I played drums, he played bass, we were the rhythm section. One of the cooler experiences in my life. I was in a few other cover bands after that too. Uh, strictly the sort of where you know where you play every few months and do an occasional backyard barbecue kind of thing. Nothing serious. But I missed writing music. And two things happened soon after to bring that back for me. One was that I got a laptop in 2006. And that may not sound like much, but it's what prompted me to revisit digital audio workstation software. And it turns out it had come a long way since the old days of running Cakewalk on DOS. So I got into a product called Fruity Loops and I started making my own music again. It was pretty primitive stuff, but I was fascinated by how the internet provided these end-to-end services for amateur musicians. And soon enough, I had my own website and was hawking my CDs on CD Baby, pretending to be a pro. And it was kind of fun for a while. But then in 2008, while shamelessly promoting my new album on a local forum, some rando reached out to compare notes. He and I got to talking and realized we had very similar musical interests. We were about the same age and we lived about a mile apart. And he's been one of my best friends for over 15 years now. So cheers and a shout out to T-Bone, my partner in crime. We started a project in 2008 that's still going strong today seven albums later, with more on the way. And by the way, these days, he and I only use Ableton Live. Uh, I gave up on Fruity Loops a long time ago. But that is a story for another day, if I ever get around to making a part two. So you might be asking by now, (laughs) what is the point of your story? Again, the point is not that we had a high school band. The point is that I encourage everyone listening to be a creator. If you're a fan of music, maybe you'll be a fan of creating it. Maybe you have a guitar laying around but never bothered learning how to play. I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter. You can create real music without being classically trained. Don't let that stop you. All you need to play rock is a handful of chord shapes. As you can obviously tell from the song I just played, we didn't even have that. But as a wise guy once said, it can't be that hard. Look at the people who do it. It ain't rocket science. Creating really comes down to an effort of will. Most of the battle is just having the gall and the discipline to actually try it, regardless of the outcome, to not endlessly second-guess yourself while you're doing it, or tell yourself you're not good enough, there's no point in trying. And if you're holding back because you're waiting for someone to give you permission, then allow me. I give you permission. Go create your music or your art, however you want to do it. Record your song, write your book, paint, draw, or make a podcast. Hell, I have a podcast, and if I can do it, so can you. And get your stuff out there. Don't let it just sit in your closet like my dumb book. I'm going to get my book out there. Get your stuff out there. Uh, Someone out there might dig whatever it is. They might really like your unique perspective that you bring. And I'll tell you, it's never been easier to express yourself to thousands of people. Learn a little bit of technology and you're off and running. And don't worry about if it's good or not. Some people might love it, some might not. But that's a decision every person makes individually. And you know, at the end of the day, it's just like their opinion, man. And also don't worry about monetizing. I think despite what you hear, not 
not a lot of people are monetizing things online. It just seems like everyone is because the ones who did it get a lot of press. It's kind of like lottery winners. Just keep in mind, that too, that a lot of folks who do monetize tend to sell their souls in some way. They're really selling off their privacy or their safety or their integrity, or they're really treating it as what it is, a full-time job, sometimes putting in tremendous hours, a lot of work, writing and editing, that kind of stuff. You know, all the while, in the back of their head, they're knowing they're a flash in the pan and that they won't be able to sustain an audience indefinitely. So not everybody's going to make a career of it, and that's okay. They don't have to. You shouldn't have to do everything for money. If you're creating because you love to create, that's a reward in itself. And who knows, if you do put your stuff out there, you might get lucky. Someone might want to pay you for it, and there's nothing wrong with that either. But you'll never know what will happen unless you do it and get it out there in the first place. And that takes guts. Because not everyone wants to make themselves vulnerable to criticism or to risk failing or dealing with whatever scary outcome they can dream up. But I know you've got guts or you wouldn't have been able to stand listening to me for this long. So I'm going to put a pin in it there. Hopefully I've encouraged you with this story. If there's a moral, it's this. Some people never see themselves as artists. But the truth is, we all are and you are too. It's just a question of whether you're willing to express it. So create something, get it out there, and don't worry too much about what other people think. Believe me, that positive attitude is the only reason this show has reached 40 episodes. You're listening to Stronger Than Reason, episode 40, either on YouTube or as an Apple or Spotify podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give me a shout. Let me know you're out there. As always, I thank you for listening, and until next time, stay strong.